Hey team, it's Matt Rinkine here. And you might have heard, my brand new book releases on Amazon on March 8th. It's been a labor of love that I think can really help you navigate some of the challenges you're experiencing in your own life. I go over toxic positivity and how to think you're in it for everyone else. In reality, you're in it for yourself. And I express that through this entire book and help learn from our own mistakes and how to turn the lens on ourselves and ask good questions. So go to Amazon on March 8th and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Eternal Optimist podcast. I'm Matt Drinkon, your host and an Eternal Optimist. And what is that Eternal Optimism? Ah, seeing things through a positive lens. And then the Eternal part, everything that comes at you, it's an opportunity to learn. It's as simple as that. Everything that flows through this filter, this lens that we all have, called our brain, called our senses, everything that comes through is something that we might use to our advantage to serve the world in some way. That's eternal optimism. Uh, Or as Simon Sinek might put it, uh, it's the infinite game. Playing long-term games with long-term people so we can have a long-term impact on humanity. As we get started today, I want to encourage you to rate and review this show on Apple, on Spotify. It will take you two or three minutes, and that will mean the world to me. Thank you so much for doing that in advance. You are much appreciated, our audience. Thank you. I'm also open to any feedback. Feel free to connect with me on any of our social media channels, Instagram, Facebook, at Eternal Optimist Podcast account. There's also a live stream every morning, Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. Eastern. Feel free to check that out if you want a dose of energy and optimism and a couple key learning lessons that might serve you and prompt you in your day. Now, today's episode, incredibly important. When I met Miss Gina Gardner on the other side of the pond from the UK, my first thought at the conclusion of our conversation was, man, I just met the female version of me uh, plus a few years, plus a few years. She's amazing. She has such an amazing energy. And when you hear her story, your jaw will drop. Here are a couple of things we talk about today. Well, we're gonna, we're gonna go deep right away. And you'll find out if you Google Gina uh, that she has incredible influence and reach, right? Well, as you do this, here's one story that might get you on the edge of your seat. She talks about how at the age of 28, how she was skiing in Switzerland. She went down a black diamond run. That's one of the most complicated and challenging ski runs you can go down a mountain. She went down a black diamond run over a mogul and she hit on that mogul something that caused her to land, to fall, to fall over 100 feet and have a serious spinal injury, which left her disabled. And she became paralyzed down one side. Shortly thereafter, the principal at the school that she worked died. And as a result of that, she took over within the the previous year, she become paralyzed down one side. And now the leader of the school passed away and now She's having to, one, learn how to walk again, two, lead a staff and enable the staff to take action. And the theme today, and the theme of her life is how we can see the challenges as a gift. And she shares her whole story. She talks about such things as how do we grow emerging leaders and how do we continue to grow senior leaders. We talk about the feeling, the burning feeling of when you have it inside you that you feel you can do more, what do you do? She talks about how she used the pandemic to write a couple more books. And now today she has over 30 publications. She talks about writing your own life story. She talks with such questions as what behaviors need to be in place 
for you to take action the way you want and achieve what you want. We go psychology, below the line, above the line. We talk about respect for our own people and our clients. We talk about what does excellence look like in any role in any team. What would you think would make a big difference to the way that we do things in our lives? Another question that she uses, Gina's amazing. She's got so much knowledge and so much great grace and empathy in her heart for the humanity of people. Heck, at the beginning or the end of this conversation, when we've hit the, when we finished reporting, Gina I showed me a, a Zoom picture of around her house. And in the background were literally every room was full of relief supplies for the Ukraine effort because she's big into peacekeeping and charity and helping people out. She talks about walking your walk, walking your talk, and how to go from thriving to surviving. This is an amazing conversation with my new friend, Miss Gina Gardner. I hope that you check into it, you, you pay close attention, and you go follow her over on YouTube and all the rest of the places you can find her. She won't be hard to find. Gina Gardner, look forward to it. Here comes the conversation. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Eternal Optimist Podcast, the show for optimists by optimists. This is the show for people who see the good in the world and want to make a positive difference in the lives of their families and communities. Each week, you'll hear inspiring stories that will get you thinking bigger and playing more offense in life. With your host and high-performance coach, Matt Drinkon. I remember that we met because one of our mutual friends, Eric Walwind, introduced us. I just had his wife on my show yesterday. That's great, isn't she? She's been, I've interviewed her. I love Lila, yes. And I met them on our anniversary. My wife, Julie, and I had our ninth anniversary, January 18th. And the Woolwinds happened to be down here on a speaking tour. So we saw him face to face and met him. All positive things, all positive things. Well, I just had an email from Eric because he sent me some books to distribute. And I'm just talking to one of the county librarians about how to spread their word. And the email came back and said that your interview and my interview is his two favorite. And he's done so many. Oh, sweet. And he didn't know I was having an interview with you today. He just said how much he'd enjoyed being on your show. It'd been a real blast. Sweet. I've had him and one of his sons and his wife, and I'm going to have his other son on. I just love the whole family. I think they've, they've been amazing, and I'm glad that we can connect. I think that's one of the big things about podcasting that's been exciting is that I've been able to meet so many different people, and I feel that I've taken in so much learning and depth of knowledge just from meeting so many different kinds of people. So for meeting the Woolwind family and learning about it's not just I'm going to homeschool because I don't like the other education system. No, they really want to teach the why behind everything, behind things that really matter to them, like the financial part and the understanding of investing and the understanding of how to learn, how to get deeper into the experience and ask questions, which you may not necessarily get in school here in America, in public schools. So it's great to learn from them. And I can't wait to learn from you. So I'm excited about our conversation. I'd love to kick it off, Gina, and ask you... And you can use any point in time you'd like. You can start right now today in your life or go back to childhood. But I'd love to kind of get to the bottom of what's something that you found challenging in your life and let you take it from there. I wasn't very happy at school. I didn't fit in. I always felt as if I was on the outside. And part of that was because I had changed school several times because of my father's job. When I started teaching, that was my first professional life, I found who I was. I was good at it. I loved it. 
And I was very lucky that I ended up at a school that was at a time when education was, as I see it, education. It was broad. We taught the children how to learn. It was fun, but the children still achieved well. And I was promoted very quickly. And so by the age of 28, I became the deputy principal of a large school. And I was appointed to be the catalyst for change. For the first six months, I worked with my principal, John Hughes, who was lovely, for us to strategically plan how we were going to move the school forward. And in the UK, in the February half term, we get a week's holiday. And I was a very keen skier. I was a proficient skier. But those days, it was the fashion for skis to be as long as possible. I had a new pair of skis for Christmas and they were 10 centimetres longer than I was used to. So I spent most of the week wrapping that extra 10 centimetres around my neck and falling. I did a lot of bindings checks falling. (laughs) On the Thursday, I had a really bad fall and I split my brand new ski suit from thigh to the floor and my earring went through my ear. And I said to the people that I was skiing with, look, Tomorrow, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to get myself together. We were in St. Anton, which is quite a difficult skiing area because the pistes are quite narrow and they're steep. So it's said that all of the grades on the slopes would be a grade higher anywhere else you went. So I said, leave me alone. And they said, well, come and join us for lunch, which I did. We had a lovely lunch. It was a beautiful day. The sun was shining. One of those magnificent days when, you know, everything's sparkling and it's just wonderful. And so he said, yeah, I'll come with you. So off we went on the chairlift and I got off the lift and I just followed them. We skied probably for a couple of miles and then they went round a corner. And it was pretty evident that this wasn't where they meant to be. Because instead of it being a really great red run, it was a black diamond run with moguls that were six foot tall. Ooh, ooh. So for people who don't... I've heard of these. This is like the expert level stuff. This is (laughs) beyond expert. Now, I've done black runs before several times, but nothing quite like this. Now, a mogul is where the weather has carved out the snow. And they can be anything like cobbles, just a couple of inches but these were six foot monsters and the only way you could ski was to actually turn on the mogul and slide down to change direction and I'd left a bit too late about a third of the way down this run and I ended up in powder snow and it took me about 20 minutes to retrieve my ski and then get back to where the other members of the party were all sitting on a mogul rather like an elf sitting on a mushroom So I took my skis off and we were just talking. They were all smokers and were having a cigarette. I've never smoked. But we were just sitting there and suddenly the top of my mogul gave way. And I found myself falling. But there was nowhere to fall. And the last thing I remember was hearing a scream and then everything going black. That scream was me. And I came to between 150 and 200 feet down the mountain. And it took them a long time to ski down to me. The good thing about it is that with the two falls and the skiing that I'd done, I was almost at the bottom of the run. And we were quite close to the hotel. And I was insistent that with their help, I would go back to the hotel. And the next day, we travelled home. 
my mum took one look at me and I was carted off to the local accident and emergency. And I was told that I'd got a bad concussion and that I'd trapped a nerve in my neck. So it took me three weeks to get back to school. So by this time, we're now talking about middle March. And five weeks later, I went skiing as the deputy leader with the borough ski party with 156 children. And although I was still wearing a soft collar, and I wasn't right, because we'd got a medic going with us, I was told that I could go. So this time we're skiing in Switzerland, in Morgen. As the week went on, so I became more like Quasimodo. By the Friday night, we were due to travel home on the Saturday. I said to my colleagues, I've just got to go and lie down. And I went upstairs and I don't know how I did it. I got onto the top bunk because this was not a very posh hotel, let me tell you. And within a few minutes, I discovered that I was paralysed down one side. There were children in the corridor. I didn't want to shout and frighten them. And so I had to wait until somebody came. I suspect it was only a very few minutes, but it felt like a lifetime. They arrived, all hell broke loose. I was carted off to hospital and a week later flown home back to hospital. And I eventually got back to school, I suppose, the middle of June and in the UK, we break for the summer around the 21st of July. I was sleeping and doing school and I managed to get to the holiday. And I thought, if I get to the holiday, I've got six weeks, I can really concentrate on recovering. Got to the end of the school term, eight days into the holiday, very early in the morning, I get a telephone call. On the other end of the telephone call, my principal's wife is hysterical and when I could finally understand what she was saying, she had found John Hughes had died in his sleep. So far from it being a oh. quiet, restful holiday, I had to let the rest of the staff know, let the parents know, the local authority know, help her plan the funeral and plan for September because now I was acting principal. I served as acting principal for a term and I was appointed to be the permanent principal in January, that's January 1984, I was 29. Now I was the head of that school for 20 years, just over 20 years. And for the most part, I ran that school from a wheelchair. I had two failed back surgeries. I learned to walk twice as an adult, once while I was at school and once when I left school. Now, there were some pretty dark times, but there was a huge gift in that. And the gift was I had to find a way of enabling my staff to take radical responsibility for themselves and a shared responsibility for the school and to do that without standing behind people. I'd like to think that I would have found this way of doing things if I hadn't had to. I'm honest enough to say that I'd probably have interfered far too much. It was highly successful. The school was on the 100 best schools in the country list twice. We were one of the first Beacon schools. The school was highly successful and we were commissioned by the government to go and help other schools to use the same principles. I worked for the DFES as an advisor, that's the government. I worked as a trainer facilitator for the National College and for the London Institute. I was an Ofsted inspector not all at the same time and all to bring a budget into school because our budget was so poor and I wanted our special needs and our technology to both be cutting edge. I was working a 14, 15, 16 hour day because I did a lot of that work in my own time 
by 2004, my health was deteriorating. So I was given pretty much an ultimatum by the consultant to say, carry on doing what you're doing, you'll be housebound. And I have to tell you, daytime television doesn't do it for me. No. (laughs) Okay. I left in October 2004. So the next challenge is, what do I do now? Because my identity was so tied up with being a principal. I thought, I've got all of this experience, all of this expertise. What am I going to do now? This was amazing. Just the resilience and the grit to come back from not one, multiple challenges that you've shared so far. First with the moguls and then later with the paralysis. And then when you're getting better, your principal passes away eight days into the holiday. And now before anything else within July, August, September, within less than 60 days, you get to take over and run everything and you're just recovering yourself. I mean, so many challenges, but the thing that really resonates with me the most so far, Gina, I love your story and you have a beautiful way of telling it. I love your accent, (laughs) the gift in all these challenges. I heard you share that phrase, the gift in the challenges. I admire and respect that so much that you are able to frame these really hard things were really the birthplace of... how you've learned to delegate, develop, empower your staff, your team. I mean, you were forced to do certain things and you did it because you saw the gift in all of these hardships. So I want to honor you for that. Maybe that's the theme we come back to later. I love that part of it. Yeah. And I'd love to continue on the story. What is the next story? Yeah. I'd had an internal spinal stimulator fitted and it's like having an internal TENS machine. Hmm. And I was very ill because they nicked the dura of the spine. So I was very poorly. And so it took me a little time to recover. And then I thought, what do I do now? By this time, I've not only run my own school, but I've also worked with hundreds of other teachers and dozens of other schools and worked nationally for the government. And I thought, what do I do now? So at this time, I'm still wheelchair bound, having had a second failed back surgery. And so I thought, well, do you know what? I think that leadership is leadership. I don't think it matters what the context is. So I took myself off to do a research project across industries to look at two areas particularly. How did they grow emerging leaders? Because so often people are good salespeople or good technicians, and then they're given the job of leading other people, and they find it's like herding cats. So looked at that and also then looked at the issues in terms of developing the most senior leaders because there is such a difference between being the ultimate decision maker and being somebody who's perhaps one or two levels down the line. And of course, discovered it was exactly the same as it was in education. So I wrote my first two books. And between 2005, when I set up my first business, Gina Gardner Associates, and early 2009, I used those two books as my calling card to mainly corporates doing coaching and facilitation, training, all around the development, empowerment and the development of leadership. I've always done life coaching. I've been a life coach even while I was a serving principal and so did that, but also went into corporates. And then the last recession happened. And in one week, the whole of my year's contracts disappeared because the first thing that goes in most corporate budgets when there's a recession is training and development. So I thought, what do I do now? This time I was doing some visiting lecturing for Essex University Business School, and they would commission me to go out into companies, SMEs usually, under 200 staff, 
turnover of anything up to 10 million. And very often I would be commissioned to do some training. I'd get there and discover that actually they didn't need that training. They needed something else. And so it would work with them as often invited back. And so I contacted some of those companies and said, how about I come and work on retainer? Until the pandemic, that was the model. And so I would work usually for something around two years. They were all much more profitable, better staff relationships, better staff retention, more productivity, more profitability within 10 months. And then they built on that. Even if they were successful before I worked with them, because of the work that we did about getting people to take radical responsibility for their own performance and a shared responsibility for delivering the vision and getting leaders to take responsibility for doing the inner work on themselves so that they were authentic and they walked their talk and they dealt with their own emotional fallout before working with their staff. The staff and the leaders found that they had better work-life balance, that they had greater job satisfaction. But then the pandemic happened. Now, there's a parallel. So there's the pandemic, and there's another story that runs alongside that. So just to finish the business one, the Gina Gardner Associates, it just happened that the profile of businesses that I was working with at that time were all closed by the government. Just closed because they were either in hospitality or events or just happened. Had it happened a year before, the profile would have been different. So at a stroke, Gina Gardner Associates was not operating the same way. Now, rewind a bit because... Golly, Gina, this is the second time. (laughs) I mean, it happened in the first recession in 2009, and now COVID comes around, and the second time it happens again. You are truly resilient. (laughs) Well, my mum used to call it bloody-minded, and there is something about that, that, you know, that it's not how many times you get knocked down, is it? It's how many times you get back up. Between my leaving school and 2017 and 18, I had this burning feeling that I had to do more, that I was very effective working with individuals, teams, and whole organisations. But I saw a sea change in the quality of leadership after the recession 2008-9. And talking to particularly life coaching clients who could either be the leader or dealing with a leader that was not leading effectively and looking at the news and looking at the politicians and looking at what was going on, that leadership for me lost integrity for many people, that they started to bully and targets were thrown out with no possibility of targets being met, people being put under tremendous strain. As a result, in the UK, over half the prescriptions that are written are for antidepressants. When you start to unpick that, one of the biggest reasons for that is work. There are other reasons, but a consistent reason that is actually identified is stress at work. In 2019, which is the last time when there were figures available without a pandemic or anything like that, £70 billion was lost because of days off due to stress in the UK alone. £140 billion was lost from what they call presenteeism, where people are present, they're physically present, but they're not firing on all cylinders. It is my belief that that starts and finishes with the quality of leadership. 
I decided that I needed to do something on a bigger scale. I set up Genuinely You. So here comes the next challenge. I want to do something on a global scale, okay? I've got no internet presence. I'm not very technical. I had a Facebook and a LinkedIn account, neither of which I used. I'd never videoed myself. I hadn't used any editing software or anything. And so my next challenge was if I'm going to set this up and my mission is to positively impact on over a million leaders in the next three years now, I had to find a way of doing that. So my challenge was I'm not very technical. The computer knows when I'm stressed and behaves badly in absolute proportion to my level of stress. And so I had to start creating an internet presence. I'd written another couple of books. I used the pandemic to write a lot of books. Two weeks before the pandemic, I had a long, significant leadership program certified and accredited by the Continuous Professional Development Standards Office. And that was launched two weeks before the pandemic, 10-month holistic leadership program. What I've been doing is I've got lots of online programs. I've got 30 publications now that ultimately... I want to leave a living legacy, and we all leave a living legacy in every word we speak or not, how we speak it, every action we take or not, every thought has an energy, has a vibration, that we make a difference in how we turn up moment by moment. My mission is to help people lead their own lives. So you be the leader of your own life by taking radical responsibility, and when you do, Nobody can make you unhappy or frustrated unless you choose to let them. You can't be a victim if you're being the leader of your own life. What you can be is the hero or heroine. And I liken it to writing your own life story. If you're going to write your life story, then at least write yourself a damn good part. That's right. <laughs> okay. Gina, I appreciate everything you're sharing so far. Just again, we go back to another seemingly insurmountable challenge. It happened with the pandemic and you used the pandemic to write two more books. No, no. Go ahead. I was going to say, I wrote about 15 books in the pandemic. Oh, pardon me, 15 books during the pandemic itself, up to 30 publications now. And your mission is to help people lead their own lives and to radically accept responsibility to lead their own lives and to become leaders. Yes. And the other part of that is to work with leaders so they become the leader of leaders, that they aren't sheep, they're not lemmings. Mm. And part of that is developing consciousness, mm. is to learn how to listen to that inner voice, how to tune into their intuition and to use that alongside data to be much more aware of how they turn up moment by moment and to be authentic in everything they do. One of the things that I think is a really easy model to take, if you think about your values, the values that are really, really important to you, okay, the first thing is what behaviours need to be in place for those values to be met, both in the way you behave, but also the way people behave to you. So if you think about love, one client was a couple I was working with. They were talking about the value of love. And I said, what behaviors do you need to experience in order to feel loved? And the woman said, I need him to buy me flowers. And he was incandescent. What do you mean, buy you flowers? I buy you flowers every Friday. 
And she said, no, you don't. You put flowers in the shopping trolley. You don't buy me flowers. You just put a bunch in the shopping trolley. And moreover, you usually look for the ones that are reduced. And he thought about it for a moment or two or three and then said, you're right. There's no more thought goes into that than buying a tin of beans. And I think that if you imagine a line where the behaviours, your values and the behaviours are above the line, the trick is to notice when you are approaching below the line where your behaviours are not in line with your values. And that's a model you can use with your children, with your partner, with your staff, where you agree what are the values and what are the behaviours that would operate above the line. What makes okay good? What makes good excellent? And that is something that's articulated and the blueprint for that is shared. So everybody then knows and you can say, do you know what? You're going below the line. That's not what we agreed was acceptable. It makes it very easy then to orchestrate your building on where you are now in terms of your capacity to be even better. Mm. And now a quick break for the sponsor. And this is your host, Matt Drinkon, sharing that today's sponsor is a shout out. It is a shout out to our guest, Gina Gardner's show on YouTube, Genuinely You with Gina Gardner. If you ever felt like you're in a place where you're not able to be completely authentic and be yourself, or you're not comfortable being yourself in a professional environment, so you hold back a little bit with your guard up, when you listen to Gina's show on YouTube and watch it, you get to see and experience the way it is to be completely authentic and transparent with everyone. And that is the way that Gina lives her life. That is the way that she has been living it for a number of years. And she talks about so many important, valuable topics, talks about your relationships, talks about your marriage, talks about how you conduct yourself as a leader in business, your own internal dialogue, how you might continue to learn and grow through self-study or doing it through mentors. Gina has a host of guests on her show with a host of important topics that are a compendium of personal growth and development. I encourage you and implore you, my friends, to check this out. Anything around beliefs, relationships, fulfillment with purpose, Gina is an expert and she only interviews experts. So I invite you to check it out. Genuinely You with Gina Gardner over on YouTube. Now, let's get back to the interview. So this operating above the line and below the line, how would I know if I'm living and operating my behaviors are above the line or below the line according to my values, Gina? How would I learn that, that part of the leadership development? Okay, so what are your values? If you're a leader of a business or a company, what are your company values? They are often the same, but not necessarily. And what we do is we bandy about these big words, integrity, trust, respect. So let me give you an example with respect. I went into a company in their foyer. They had their values were all written, great big letters. Right in the middle was respect, respect for one another, respect for our clients. I hadn't been in there five minutes when I heard people gossiping about other people in the company, being rude about certain clients. Now, when I talked to the boss, they had gone part of the way. They had identified the values, but they'd not identified the behaviors. At each meeting, they would take one of their values and say, what does that mean? 
what are the behaviors that underpin this particular value in the context of this company? And it has to be done by everybody within the company or within the team. You can do it in a team, you can do it as a family. Then create a model so everybody knows it's written down and it's talked about. It's not just done and put in a file. It becomes living and breathing. But it's really important that the senior leaders model those and are an excellent example of that. So it's no good talking about respect and then shouting at a member of staff in front of other people or saying that respect is important, and then gossiping or moaning about someone, that's not respectful. It's the communication where these things are teased out and agreed. It works at a whole range of levels. So I was working in a hotel. When I went to the hotel, they were eight million pounds in debt. The hotel was empty most of the time. Their reviews were terrible. And the three directors had just inherited the hotel from their father and none of them had a background in hospitality. Just an example, there was a lot of things that we did, but the housekeeping was poor. So I worked with the leader of the housekeeping and I helped her run a session where we looked at what does excellence look like when you're cleaning a bathroom? What does it look like when you're cleaning a bedroom? And the ladies, and they happened to all be ladies, sat and discussed what's good enough and what's excellent. How would we define the difference? The excellence model became that's their standard. We also then set up a way of that being monitored. But we set up a reward system rather than a you do it wrong and we tell you off system. They monitored and it was the people didn't know when their rooms were going to be monitored. They were done in a way that it wasn't Tuesday, oh, it's my room today, I'll do it properly. And they collected merits. And at the end of the month, the person with the most merits got a free meal for them and their husband in the restaurant of the hotel. It cost very little for the hotel to, to give them a meal. But it was a way of saying, we've noticed that you're really working hard. Thank you. So can you see how you've got people with different standards? My standard of cleanliness and excellence in terms of cleanliness might not be the same as yours. But if you do it collectively and then any new member of staff is taken in and it's shared with them, so it's perpetuated. And it can work in pretty well any business context. I've worked in such a range of businesses. But the important thing is that it's revisited that it's part of day-to-day -day conversation. But if the leader doesn't model it, then you're on a hiding to nowhere. Well, I appreciate your insight here and your expertise here in sharing how you've helped to turn this specific example with the hotel and speaking with the leader of housekeeping, how you got them to collaborate together to look at what excellence looks like in their behaviors. And then they created the standard and I love the way that you bring that to them. And that's how we determine above or below yeah. the line is they get to create what the behaviors look like when they're living up to or exceeding that standard or their values. I love that. But just to let you know, the hotel, within five years, they were debt free. They had refurbished the hotel. They had an 87% occupancy. It was buzzing with people, coffee, lunch, afternoon tea, dinner. They did specialist events, conferences, and so on. The hotel won awards. It was doing really well when I left. Fantastic. Well, congratulations. Thank you. But the same principles I developed at school. 
exactly the same. Get people to see the vision, to share it and to own it and then to take radical responsibility for their part in delivering it. And you have success that's actually sustainable. I go back to that thread of radical responsibility. I love the concept so much. I'm curious, when you come upon a leadership team, maybe it's a team of people, or maybe it's one leader above everyone who is resistant to radical, (laughs) accepting radical responsibility. And they might point to the other people and say Mm -hmm. that it's on them. And I'm curious how you might help get that person to come to see the folly of their ways or come to be more self-aware when you find that challenged leader who thinks it's everyone else. Let me give you another example then, because it's easier to tell you the story. So I'm working with a laboratory and the owner works in the laboratory. When I start working with them, they're successful, but all of the staff are on piece rate. They work incredibly long hours. There's quite a lot of dissension and his starting point was, if only I could get the right staff, then I would have time to do my own work and I'd have a life. And when I went in and I started to watch and to listen, the reason that was going on is because nobody trusted themselves to be the arbiter of the standard of their work. It all went through him. And the reason that happened is because on a good day, he was very jovial and hail fellow well met. But on a bad day when he was stressed, he was grumpy and would fly off the handle. When we started talking about it had to start with him and taking radical responsibility and that he had to be consistent about doing it, he was resistant. And to start with the resistance is that he would cancel appointments. I thought, what am I going to do with him? On one hand, he says, I want a life. I want staff to be better. I want things to go well. On the other hand, it's the staff. If only you could get the right staff, it would all be all right. I said, if you're brave enough, we'll have a staff meeting that I'll run and we'll ask your staff to be prepared to say what would they think that would make a difference to what they were doing. And I facilitated that meeting I think he found it very painful because whilst, in fact, they were very nice about it, there were enough home truths in there, the fact that they didn't know one day to the next how he was going to behave, that they were unclear about the standard because on one day a standard would be okay and on another day it wouldn't. But there were lots of other things. So, for example, not only was he like that with the staff, but the dentists, it was a dental lab. They had terms and conditions, but none of the dentists played ball with the terms and conditions. Their time was taken up because they wouldn't get the prescriptions because they made implants and crowns. So a lot of time was taken up because there was no consistency. Started with the staff in terms of what could we easily do with them that would make a difference to their life and at the same time I started to work completely separately with the business owner. Once you recognise you're the common denominator you take yourself into every moment of every day. You can't change other people but you can change you so let's change a few things and let's see if it works. We looked particularly at okay let's look at your dentists that you work with And we got him and the staff to grade them A, B or C. 
A is they always do what they are supposed to. They pay on time. Their prescriptions are perfect. Great. And then we looked at those who sometimes aren't very good and those that were awful. And take up 80% of your time is taken up with 20%. And I made a radical suggestion. I said, okay, we reissue your terms and conditions and tighten them up. And we say that from a month's time, you've got a month to get your act together, we'll give you a month and we'll work with you. But if you continue not to fulfill the terms and conditions, we're really sorry, we won't provide you with the service anymore. The staff were over the moon because they were so frustrated by that. Some of the dentists complied. They went out and trained those dentists initially and they sacked quite a few dentists but suddenly found they had a lot more time to go and recruit new dentists. And they got a great reputation. Their work was great. But within 10 months, one of the things that I'd suggested and that the leader did quite reluctantly, I have to say, was to stop them being on piecework and put them on a salary. Within 18 months, they were working probably a third less hours, but were much more productive. He was much more even. He had a life. Everybody had a life. They became a learning environment. And so Thursdays were learning days. And every member of staff, however junior, took it in turns to teach the rest of the group something. So they'd go and research things. They'd teach each other the skills. And they then started to work in teams. And they were always having very complex things to do. And so Instead of everybody doing a little bit of it, they'd get together and say, right, how are we going to manage this? Their job satisfaction went up, the quality of work went up, the quantity of work went up, and the quality of their life and their relationships improved. Now, once people start to see results, then they will do more, won't they? But often there is a resistance because people like to stay in their comfort zone. I think it ought to be called their familiarity zone because it's often uncomfortable. But you've got to look for the quick wins. And that's why when I came in, I looked where can they create quick wins that will improve the quality of their experience. And that was actually initially focusing on the dentists. And that's takes us back to that first feedback meeting where we asked the question, what do you think would make a difference in the way we do things? It was very painful for the leader. I'm curious in your private one-on-one with that leader afterwards, after that particular meeting, was there an aha moment like, oh my goodness, I can't believe they said all that and it's on me, I I need to change. Was it instantaneous for the leader or did they start to see and then believe? (laughs) I think probably a bit of both. We'd had a lot of discussion before the meeting. He didn't go into that meeting cold. I'd had a conversation with each member of staff individually. I knew pretty well a number of things that were going to come up. So I had been able to say to him, don't be surprised. And I'd seen it myself. I said, they're going to confirm the things I've been saying to you, and they're going to be new stuff there. Instead of seeing this as a negative, I want you to see that this is an opportunity. You now have a choice. Everything we do is a choice. Even not choosing actively is a choice. And it's often when we let things drift that the most far-reaching consequences, because every choice has a consequence, the most far-reaching and negative consequences often come when we just allow things to drift. And I think that before that meeting, I'd been saying to him, you keep saying you want better staff, but actually 
if you carry on doing what you're doing, it doesn't matter how good your staff are, you're the person that's actually getting in the way of developing them. If you choose to develop them, yes, there may still be staff that in four months' time you decide they're not for you, but at least you'll know that they're not for you for the right reason and not simply because you're not managing them properly. And that is a tough pill to swallow for so many leaders, but what you're describing is such an important function that you as a teacher, a coach, a leader yourself, it's such an important function. This is so prevalent all of the United States as well as in the UK that the values are on the wall behind the reception area and in email signatures. And are they coming to life? Are people living them? Are the behaviors, are they congruent? I don't think so in many cases. I'm glad to hear that there's an expert like you who can teach people this. <laughs> Just a small example. I was working in a manufacturing firm. They manufacture wood floors. The boss, and we'd been working for a very short time, I was complaining that his staff were not compliant wearing safety goggles and safety shoes. And I said, well, you do realise that in the UK, if there is an accident, you're culpable, not them. He said, well, I've told them. I said, You've told them, but you've not actually done anything about it. Moreover, I've noticed that you walk across the shop floor and you've not got steel cap shoes on. And so you're not giving them a great example. You tell them, but it's a bit like parents. Go and tidy your room. Then no consequences. For every choice, there has to be consequences. We told the staff that from next Monday, you've got a week. If you come, if you don't bring your steel tap capped shoes and you're not wearing them you'll be sent home to get them and your pay will be docked very simple one person forgot them on monday nobody ever forgot them again very clear but also the managing director and his directors recognized that they had to have the same practice when they were walking across the manufacturing floor you have to walk your talk, model what you want, and follow through. And in many ways, being a leader of a team or a company, whether that's small or big, is a bit like being a parent. You know, if you just nag your children, it becomes white noise. There has to be consequences. If you're good, this happens. If you're not, this happens. So many Great lessons you've shared today so far, Gina, and I honor you for that. Thank you. It sounds so simple. It might be the best kept secret hiding in plain sight. To bring your values to life, to live your values, you have to decide, make a conscious decision of A, what they are, B, what the behaviors are that match living yeah. to that standard. And as a leader, you got to walk the walk. I love everything you shared. I'm curious if someone out there hears this and it resonates because I'm sure there are a lot of leaders out there that can hear this exact story, the three examples you shared in the last few minutes, and it really connects. You know, how would someone go about or reaching out to you or finding out more about your practice and how they may take advantage of some of the leadership development that you offer? The best thing to do is probably email me at gina, G-I-N-A, at genuinely-u.com. That's gina at genuinely hyphen We'll have that in the show notes for everyone. Where else can we find out about you and any social media handles or anything else? Because you said before that you didn't really do social media, but I think you do now. How can we find you? <laughs> um, you can come to Genuinely You on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. I'd be grateful if your listeners would subscribe to my YouTube channel, which is Genuinely You with Gina Gardner. There's about 
650 videos on there with all sorts of things on there to help. Go and look on my Amazon page, you'll find books. More recently, I've been creating intentional journals and workbooks. So instead of giving people a great big book, and there are plenty of conventional books there as well, there's a particular theme and then there's a 30-day workbook for people to actually start to embed that theme. Because I know people are short of time so there's a lot of leadership books there, but there are also themes around health. If people are interested in my story and the principles that I use, then Thriving Not Surviving, The Five Secret Pathways to Happiness, Success and Fulfillment shares a bit of my story and the principles. Interesting, those five pathways, doesn't matter whether it's a life coaching client or a business client, we end up going through those five pathways, which are around beliefs, relationships, the approach to success, managing change and transitions, and then fulfillment and purpose. And those are, I would say, the five pathways that everybody needs to be aware of and to work on doing that deep dive internal work. So there's a lot of resources there for self-help. If you go to ginagardnerassociates.co.uk or enlightenedprofitableleaders.com, their training platforms. If you want to look at the personal stuff, then go to Genuinely You. There's a Relationship Bridge program there. There is a spiritual and personal program, Thriving, that you can do. If you're stressed, then the Personal Empowerment Plan, that's a 26-week program where you get a pep talk, a personal empowerment program, a little video, five minutes on a Sunday night of a strategy for you to use to manage your life more effectively without stress. We can't eradicate stress, but there are so many things we can do. So just one little example, one of those is the mountain molehill test. So when things happen, it tends to be the end of the world. It's a big thing. It's a mountain. So ask yourself, tomorrow, will it still be a mountain or will it have become a molehill? What about next week? Will it be a molehill next week? What about the end of the year? What about the five years? What about the end of your life? And I would say 99.999 reoccurring, at some point on that timeline, it will reduce from a mountain to a molehill. Well, if you're going to reduce it in a week, a month, five years, why don't you reduce it now to a molehill and actually put it into perspective and save yourself a lot of heartache? Wow. Wow. If you're going to reduce it in a week, a month, a year, five years, why not reduce it now and save yourself the headache, the heartache? Love it. This is amazing. That's just one example. There's 26 different ones. And some will suit some people, some will suit others. Mm. I love the idea of journaling. What's an example of one of your journals that we might find at your Amazon page? Because I love the idea of getting a journal. And I think that might be a giveaway or something that we might order a few of those to give some of our listeners. What uh, What's an example of one of the journals, Gina? There is a series of leadership books, which is Emerging Enlightened Leadership, Authentic Enlightened Leadership, Limitless Enlightened Leadership. I'm just trying to think what the other one is now. Profitable Enlightened Leadership, I think. But they come as a whole series. If you are an empath, there's a whole series of books for empaths. If you're facing illness, then there are two books. So one is Take Responsibility for Your Life. Now, that was created by myself and a friend who was living with cancer in terms of don't just leave it to the doctors. Not against doctors, but you have to take radical responsibility for your own health. 
And then the other one is for people living with long-term illness, including long COVID and disability. And that's a book, but it, there's a whole playlist of videos on YouTube that go with the book. So you buy the book and look at the videos and they work together. The videos are free and the books are very cheap, $10, all of them. This has been a really amazing journey you've taken us on so far today, Gina, and I really appreciate it. I would love to invite you into our wrap-up section, which is ding, 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 the lightning round of questions, okay. of which I have three questions to wrap things up. First, I'd love to ask you, when you hear the title of our show, The Eternal Optimist, Yep. podcast. What does eternal optimist or eternal optimism, what does that mean to you, Gina? It means that you look for the opportunities, that instead of looking for all the things that go wrong, that you actually look for what you can do rather than what you can't. Have I got time to share a little story? Absolutely. So in 2005-06, I became a master practitioner of neuro-linguistic programming. And I wanted to go and see as many people doing it as possible. And I ended up at the Excel Centre in London on Unleash the Power Within with Tony Robbins. I have to say, I was quite cynical when I went, you know, big American, very loud. I thought it's going to be all hype. How wrong could you be? In the morning, he was talking about a course in California, and I really fancied it. But even though I'd traveled the country working, I'd run my school from a wheelchair, I didn't have an, at that time an electric travel chair. And I thought I won't be able to do that. And I dismissed it. The thing being that when I traveled around the country, I used the same taxi driver. He would take me to where I was going, wait for me, bring me back. So I just dismissed it out of hand. That evening, I did the fire walk. Now, I could walk a few steps with help at that time, and I was absolutely chuffed to little mint balls that I had managed to walk the fire walk. But as I sat down in my wheelchair, the guy behind me was a double amputee. He tipped himself up onto his hands, and he walked the hot coals on his hands. And in that moment, I realized that I was self-limiting. That night, I booked my flight, and I booked my ticket to the course, I did all of Tony Robbins' courses, became a senior leader. I traveled the world and I am eternally grateful to this guy. I have no idea who he is. And I've shared this story because for me, he helped me recognize that I was limiting. And for me, part of eternal optimism is to look at what you can do rather than what you can't. And we all self-limit. So my challenge to your listeners is, how are you self-limiting at the moment? And how can you expand, use that optimism to expand your horizons? Wow. Wow. That, yeah, that was definitely worth the time to hear that story, Gina. Thank you. That was amazing. My pleasure. Next question. Is there any particular, let's just say a song or a movie, maybe a song and a movie that might inspire you, give you energy? I think something like Erin Brockovich, you know, looking at somebody where all of the odds were against her. There wasn't a song in the movie, but certainly the movie, how being persistent and knowing what was right, her level of integrity about it, when the big boys were all fighting dirty and that she was going to get on and she was going to do it. For me, watching that... I think is something that's so inspiring. Hit the nail on the head there. I love that movie. I remember that one. I'd say last question here. 
if there are one or two books that you'd recommend that have had an impact in your world, outside of your own collection, your own library of books you've written, if there are any other books out there, one or two that may have impacted you. One would be Johan Hari's Lost Connection, which talks about depression. Not that I suffer from depression, but what an amazing book around how we deal with depression in entirely the wrong way and looking at the causes of depression. That had a profound effect. And I suppose for me, The Eighth Habit by Stephen Covey, the seven habits were amazing, but The Eighth Habit is something that resonated so much with how I was operating and how I believe we should operate. That's something that shaped me. The Seventh Habit, which I read many, many years ago, and then The Eighth Habit when it first came out. And it wasn't that it was teaching me to do something different. What it did is it really confirmed for me what I had been doing. Fantastic. Thank you. Tina, it's been amazing having you on the show today. I I thank you so much. Our listeners, thank you so much. And you've enlightened us. You've given us so much information. You've given us so many heartfelt stories. I believe that anyone who's listening to this is going to be a Gina Gardner fan. And you can see in the show notes, friends, where to go and check out Gina and see the number of places. The number one place I'd encourage you to check out Gina. I think she said, go to her YouTube channel. And in that YouTube channel, I believe it's Genuinely You with Gina Gardner. Check it out. 650 videos in there and get to know this wonderful woman, Gina Gardner. By the way, before we recorded this, when Gina and I first met like a week or two ago, she was in the middle of an amazing humanitarian effort. Can you share with the listeners to wrap things up? What were you doing in the last week or two, Gina, to help out in the world? Love to hear a quick bite of that story, please. I have a Ukrainian refugee staying with me through the UK scheme. And before the war, she worked with a charity that supports mainly orphans, many of whom are disabled, but they're also now supporting families that have been bombed out. She was feeling that she was not able to do anything. So I said, well, why don't we do a charity event? So last Saturday, we did an in-person charity event. It was a lot of hard work. I realized the last time I ran it, I was at school and I had 100 staff and 500 kids to delegate to and carry and so on. So we did really well. And we've now still got an online giving. I'd love it if your listeners would help. It's justgiving.com forward slash crowdfunding forward slash mom, M-O-M plus P-L-U-S me, M-E. So justgiving.com forward slash crowdfunding forward slash mom plus me. And it would be great even if you can spare just a few dollars. And that's mom plus P-L-U-S or is it the plus sign? No, it's the word plus me. And just one thing that they've been doing, a hundred place orphanage. There is no electricity because the infrastructure has been bombed out. Many of those children in wheelchairs, no heating, no lighting, no hot food. The charity provided them with warm clothing and they set up a field kitchen so that they at least get one hot meal a day. I've got pictures of the children out in the snow being fed from the field kitchen. I know there are so many calls upon people's purse, but just a few dollars would make such a difference. It goes such a long way, just even a few dollars. And we'll have this in the show notes as well. Justgiving.com forward slash crowdfunding forward slash mom plus me to help out Ukrainian orphans, many in wheelchairs, disabled to have food and warmth. So thank you. Thank you, Gina, again for everything. 
and friends out there listening, this is the caliber of human being that is helping to lead this revolution of hope and inspire strong leadership. So please reach out to Gina. Please check out her work. And if you're looking in your company to make some shifts and to live a more valued-centered, heart-centered leadership style for the people, then definitely contact Gina Gardner. So Gina, thank you so much for being here today. We love you and we really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Eternal Optimist podcast. You can check the show notes for information about today's episode. And please share the show with that friend who is wanting to think bigger. We'll see you next time.